Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Episode 74 Bosses of the Presentation Boss Podcast, and it's time again for another guest expert interview. Today we have joining us arguably Canada's number one speaker, and he's been recommended to us quite a few times, and honestly, we've both listened to a heap of him on other podcasts, his podcast, seen his stuff, right? Definitely. I've listened to a lot of his stuff. So today you're going to hear from Scott Stratton, and I hope you've heard of him. He seems to be a big name, but I'm always surprised how much people haven't heard of some of our big wishlist guests. So Kate reached out and got him on the show, and we were really interested in sort of Scott's whole approach. He speaks a lot about marketing. We've mentioned him before back in uh, our Christmas episode. You used him as an example for like what to wear because he has like, he looks like a biker, right? He's got like a ponytail. No, we actually discussed it afterwards. He looks very much like Dave Grohl from um, Nirvana slash Foo Fighters. He's got that real grunge kind of... And we found out he was the lead singer of like a, a rock a or a metal band. Yeah. Grunge band, yeah. yeah. So he's got like the tattoos and the black t-shirt and he just has a bit of a look. A very strong personal brand in his look. Yeah, but he also has talked in a lot of other podcasts I've listened to about how he kind of doesn't prepare for his talks. And we thought that'd be really interesting to talk about. However... During this recording, we sort of kind of wound up moving entirely away from the questions that we thought we would ask and that we'd shared with him in advance, because as you'll hear, he's recently just changed his whole approach to speaking. And that surprised us during the interview, and we just went with that, and it was a really good conversation, but basically you heard it here first. Scott Stratton has changed his whole approach. Yeah, it was one of the most delightful conversations that I've had in a long time. Scott was deep and raw and a little bit vulnerable, and... I was so thankful that he was willing to share that with us. We were both on a high for days after we recorded this episode. Turns out when you mix two Australians and a Canadian who also has a big personality, good things happen and the conversation just flows super easily. As always, we booked in for an hour and we got to the end of the hour and we're like, oh, should we let you go, man, and go and do your thing? And he's like, I'm having fun. Are you having fun? Let's keep going. Yeah. <laughs> just... <laughs> so this was a conversation Unlike others that we've had in a few ways, it was fantastic fun. But I also know there's going to be some great value uh, and some little knowledge nuggets that Scott will drop. So why don't we hear exactly who Scott Stratton is, Kate? All right. So we do get our guests to provide us a biography and Scott's media kit includes two biographies. So I'm going to give you his full version and then also provided is his mini version. So let's hear the full version first. Scott Stratton is the president of Unmarketing. He's written five best-selling business books and was formerly a music industry marketer, national sales training manager, and a college professor. He ran one of the most successful viral video agencies in the world for nearly a decade before solely focusing on speaking at events for companies like Walmart, Pepsi, Adobe, IBM, Microsoft, Cirque du Soleil, and Saks Fifth Avenue when they need help navigating their way through the landscape of business disruption. And now, let me give you Scott's mini-bio. Scott Stratton is going to yell a lot. Enjoy. Welcome, Scott Stratton, to the Presentation Boss podcast. Oh, geez, I'm just flattered you asked, so thank you for having me. Um, so, Scott, we really love a great bio. We've just heard yours. Yours is funny. It's just absolutely wonderful. Um, but can you talk us through who is Scott Stratton when he's not at work? Uh, you're talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> since my job, since my job for the past decade has been speaking at large indoor gatherings, AK also known as conferences. Um, uh, when Scott not is not at work, Scott is right now. Yeah, uh, it's um, I, I've I've always had a passion for for speaking. I don't know if that makes sense, but literally in front of people, since as long as I can remember, I had the ability to to present to talk, and I, I realized I could. It was addictive, you know. It was enthralling that you could control a room, you could stand up, and everybody else couldn't. And I didn't know, I didn't figure that out because people ask me, you know, you get nervous and how do you get over nerves? And here's the thing, and you won't believe this. I've never been nervous. That is not a skill. That is not a, that is not a, a thing I have attained or I'm trying to sell a course on. I don't know why I'm missing a synapse in my brain that says pee your pants, you know, before you go up on stage, I just do it. And that's how I graduated high school and college and got one of my jobs. I was a national sales training manager for a company because I could stand up in a room and I could talk, I could talk about anything. I'm pretty good at, at, at BS. I'm pretty good. You know, I could fill. I so my training manager job. I was a out of college. I was a um, my second job at the college. I was a national sales training manager for a packaging company. I flew around North America training people how to sell uh, bubble wrap. I'm going to say that again. I so I I flew around North America training people how to sell air. So <laughs> if you think what you're going to be presenting on or talking about is hard to fill time with, I had to run two day training schools based on air. And I did it and I could train 16 hours on air. And uh, so, so I have a, I have a master's in BS. I'm pretty good at that, but. <laughs> I find it fascinating that there is someone who like that there's enough air that gets sold that you need someone to train the people that are selling it. <laughs> by the truckload, by the truck. So my job, I would, I would train our distributors. So I would train, I wouldn't train our company. I would go to our distributors who sold the packaging and cleaning supplies. And I would teach them how to sell packaging because it was more of a consultative sale than a price per roll sale. So I, I, we, we created a training program that was consultative selling, which was you're not selling on the price per roll because you're dealing with fractions of a penny and discounting. And, and that's just a race to the bottom. So, so we trained the distributors to sell all their product lines based on reduce, r reducing costs. And, and so it was not cost of a bubble wrap roll, reducing breakage you know, of their shipped packages. And this is, this was 20 years ago. And so Amazon was a client of our company of, of Poly Air, where I worked for their air and their packaging and everything is like, I can save you a penny a roll on this bubble wrap, or I can sa save you a hundred thousand dollars in breakage a year. Let's talk about it. And so they became consultants. So our guys, we, I trained our, our I was part of training our sales guys to go in and, and help the distributors and customer package better. So they became packaging consultants instead of bubble wrap salespeople. And, and that was the, that was the difference of, of, so it was, although it sounds funny, it actually, it was a commodity and we made it not a commodity and it was really exciting. Is that where you got started in speaking was in that sales training role? Is that, is that the genesis of the Scott Stratton experience? Well, I, so I always knew I wanted to be in front. So when I was 12 years old, I was watching TV and uh, it was a, a pledge drive for a, a, a PBS station, a public broadcasting station. And they're like, if you give $30 a month, we're going to send you this Les Brown videotape motivational talk. And I'm 12 years old. So this is back in 87. And uh, of course, so I had no remote on the TV. So whatever channel the TV was on, it would stay on that for three days. And so I just was sitting there 12 years old watching, doing nothing you know, nothing back then. And uh, Les Brown comes on and starts speaking. And I'm, I'm just captivated, captivated by this guy on stage. And I just turned to my mom walking by and I'm like, is this a job? She's like, yeah, you can be a speaker. And I'm like, I can just yell at people and go home. And, and she's like, oh, if, you, if you put your mind to it, you know, and of course I had potential back then, which, which I found out later on in life. I learned that potential is you suck now. 
you know, but one day you may not suck as much. And so I, I put my mind to it and I just always knew I wanted to be in front of an audience. I loved it. I loved the immediate feedback. I love making people laugh. I was the class clown. And so then I ended up going into HR, into human resources was what I took in college because I knew two things. One, that training was usually under the human resources department, the personnel department where training and development or learning and development was. And then the other side of it was I treating people well and human rights and a whole thing under that umbrella is under HR. HR was one of the dep only departments that changes people's lives, good or bad. Now, when I graduated and got into HR, I realized a lot of it was not about that and was about doing management's commands, but uh, the point was still there. So I went from the HR and I went into training manager and then I, uh, our son was born and I'm like, I'm not gonna be on the road and then in the office the whole time. And so I, uh, I walked away when he was born and in Canada we have parental leave as well as maternity leave. So I got to take a few months off when Owen was born and I just never went back almost 20 years later now so why why do you think it is that scott stratton loves speaking like what is it i mean like i know i love it as well being in front of an audience can you put a point on it of like why you get your jollies off doing that i i it's so i was a lead singer in a heavy metal band in high school and so i was a i was a really good front man for a band other than the fact that i can't sing so you know i couldn't hit a note very well like i can do karaoke with the with with not the best of them but the middle group of them i can hit a few songs but I was, I, I had no shame. So I would do any song. I would do everything from, from Europe, the final countdown to Pantera, Metallica, to Primus, Rage Against Machine before they were big. Like we did all these, any, any song you wanted, I would just go all out. I, I, I just, I think one of the things is I just don't care about people's opinion about, especially back then, I'm just like, I'm going to enjoy it. And I loved it and I did it. And then I realized I ain't going to make it as a singer. So I started managing bands back then. But I, I, I always tell people I just fired the band and I stayed on stage, you know? And so you don't have to split it five ways anymore. And uh, um, I just knew early on, every, a lot of people go through life, you know, looking for their thing, what their thing is. And I am so fortunate and so privileged that I knew from 12 that this was going to be my thing. And fast forward that moment when I was 12 years old, uh, watching Les Brown on my little TV in my living room, 20 years, almost 20 years to that, almost that week, I'm on stage at Les Brown's event, speaking at his event. Wow. Okay. Yeah, right. And then for the past 10 years, all, I've, all I was doing was giving keynote talks at conferences. So it's just like talking is my business. I just, I, I love doing it. I love performing. I really am a, a performer. I'm a storyteller. I, you realize that after a while, right? I did the training, I did the workshop, I did all these things. And I realize, you know, I'm, I'm just, uh, I love performing. I, you know, I do the air band, I would do the air guitar for our relatives when I was seven years old and to Prince, let's go crazy and all these type of things. And I, I, I just like, I'm a performer. I just never fell into those routes of uh, drama class or th like these type of things where that a performer would usually go. And so I, but I have a love for business. So I have that performer heart, but a, a love of business. So you try to find that combination right you, you never think that they'll meld together you can have a hobby and a passion then you have your business and the goal is always you know as everybody says right you, you want that passion to be your business sometimes uh and then for the past but the past decade literally um i've, I've been living my dream this is what i want to do my whole life and i did it for 10 years until um until covid and uh and then now we're figuring out what's next yeah right so um Obviously, you help businesses now then. And what do you help them do? Well, not, not I'm just turning off my phone. I apologize if you're listening, if you heard any of that. Um, so now it really is, a, you know, so we're looking at, you know, what do we do? And this still is, you know, I also come from a family of teachers. And I taught 
uh, I was a college professor for seven years and I realized I loved that. I love the fact that if you can present well, if you have an idea, whether you're trying to sell something or whether you're trying to pass on, it's a transfer of knowledge. It's a transfer, hopefully, of skills. It's only a skill if they apply the knowledge, but it's a transfer of that. And being able to figure out a way, how do you create this and word this and do this in a way that the adult learning principles, right? They have a frame of reference. You get some repetition and you get all these type of things. And then they, they see something differently. And that to me is a goal. And that's why I use humor a lot of times because when people laugh, I think they listen. And when they listen, they learn without even knowing it. That's my goal is to, is to pull a fast one on everybody. You know, and they're just like, is this like a comedy show? And they're like, <laughs> oh, wait. You know, and they, <laughs> and they start listening and they start thinking. So my job now and for the near future is just putting out content about putting, because I'm not actually a speaker. You know, I'm Scott. I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about, you know, about disruption and doing marketing and unmarketing. Our, the pillars of our company are authenticity, integrity, and uh, community. And so the, the goal now, since it's been a 10 years of just being on the road and not putting out content mostly, is going back to that, which is the foundation of unmarketing, that we think you can market your business and you can sell and you can have employees, you can have all these things and do it not in a hypocritical way. The way like we hate getting marketed to, like it's getting a cold call and getting angry at them and then picking up the phone and you placing a cold call for your business. I, I think there's a market out there, there's an audience out there who wants to do it a bit differently. And I, I think if you are your authentic self, you have no competition. Yeah. Such long-winded answers. I apologize. I, I, I have no outlet for my talks at this point. So you guys are getting everything. No, it's great. It's great. I love listening and just kind of opening that to, to whatever you, wherever you want to go with it. I love it. I think the problem is because we listen to a lot of podcasts ourselves, like we've listened to a lot of you and you do the thing where like you pause your own podcast, you're like, Scott said something really good there. But when you're recording your own podcast, you stay, it's like you're just staring at each other in silence. Like this was a good thing. Oh, I need to ask my next question. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait a second. We're interviewing him. Yeah. It's... This is happening. Yeah. <laughs> so on that, like we've heard, I've heard you talk about your, I'll call it a process for like developing a, um, developing a presentation. Yeah. We know that you're not a sort of scripty type person. I'm sure I've heard you talk about, you kind of just get up and look at the clock and then just start talking. Right. How, yeah. How but but Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I got to step in there because uh, that's all changed in the past month. Um, right. It went from, you know, being kind of, you know, quarantined in, in, in our house and, and not traveling and, and being, you know, one take Stratton. That was my thing. I would, I would just, because I have the, that natural ability to go do it, I would just do it. And, and it worked well with keynotes on stage because a keynote at a conference is different than a presentation. It's different than a workshop. It's different than a training session. A keynote in an industry, especially the one, uh, one I'm not in, is to set the tone. Right. So, you know, looking at your presentation, it's about, so what's the job of the presentation? Because a lot of times in my industry of professional speaking, we think it's about us. And it took me a very long time to realize where it wasn't. It was about our job in the conference. And, uh, but doing, you can't do the same type of keynote through a camera virtually anyways. I, I, now, some people have done great jobs of it, but it's still different because the conference isn't there. And so I, have to, I had to look at all this stuff and I had to talk to Allison, who's my, my business partner and the co-author and, and the best part for me, my wife, that uh, we had to look at, instead of Scott being his, my own self-alleged star on the stage, that what do, does the world need right now? What does our audience need? And they need practical advice. They don't need a keynote talk. They don't need, tell, they don't need me telling three stories on stage, making them laugh, waving at them, and enjoy the conference. And, and that was a big 
shift in my brain. So I, we just put out, this is great timing. So we just put out our first video of our new world of what we're doing yesterday. And I have never scripted a video in my life. I have never rehearsed a talk in my life. Every video I made was off the cuff. Everything I did for events was off the cuff. And that was my style. I uh, rehearsed this video, the, the script. I scripted it. Allison scripted it and, and put it together for me. And then she's the writer out of the two of us. And then I rehearsed it nine times. I'm currently looking at you right now through a camera with a teleprompter in front of it. Now there's, I'm not reading any words. I haven't <laughs> planned in my answers or anything, but I had to learn to read off a teleprompter. Scott Stratton read a teleprompter. That's in my head. It's like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, the goal is, will this video be better if, I, if we keep Scott on point or on focus? Yes. My concern always was a scripting that I didn't feel natural. Yeah. Well, that was also my excuse for not wanting to practice. Right. I, I put in my own blocks. Right. Would, would I have been a worse keynote speaker if I rehearsed some of those stories? No, but, but uh, yes, I would have potentially, but I don't because my reps were on stage. I had I did 500 keynotes in the past 10 years. I got the reps in, in real time and I was good with that's how the stories form. That's how they develop. And that's how my brain works. But this is different. Virtual is different for us. And I decided that either I can keep my ego or say, what is the best for our company, for us, for everything? And so I scripted it. So if you watch that video, I realized my, my fear of scripting was my personality would leave, but I didn't have to do that because I would read through the script and then I would do cuts. I would look off camera and I would say something. I would make the screen black and white and say something to somebody off camera who's not even there, by the way, when you watch the video, it's just me looking at our staircase, which is amazing. But it was like, so through the editing, I could keep my personality in there. And that was the difference. So I had to get over myself. Um, because the people I've heard, just like yourself, they've heard it, me saying that I don't rehearse. And I've never told people they don't need to rehearse. I just, because of that missing synapse in my brain, I don't get nervous. I think things through in real time on stage. So when I was on stage, I would be thinking in my head, I'm never present on stage. This is the messed up part. When I'm on stage in a keynote, I'm never in the moment. I'm always talking to myself in my head saying, well, we're going to go with this, this joke here. It's going to go this way. And I'm always doing that. That was my, that's my craft. I just built that over years, but this isn't my, this wasn't my craft. You know, I love filming videos, but doing educational videos. And the point is what do we want them to take away from this message and what could get in the way from them receiving the message? It's the basic form of communication that this is the irony that I taught at the college level. I taught business communications. I taught that fundamental communications model, sender, receiver, encoding, decoding messages, noise in the middle, all this stuff. And I just, then I just threw it at the window and said, doesn't apply to me. And then off I went. And that's the biggest mistake I think we make in creating presentations and forming it is what do I want to say? It is irrelevant what I want to say on a talk. It is irrelevant. It's what do I want the audience to gain? What do we want to do to make sure that they stay watching, that they retain it without doing any kind of uh, a trick or clickbait title or anything like that? Is what, what do we want them to walk away from? And usually it's two things. One is the point, the lesson. And two is that they want more of this because there's still a marketing part in what I do. And I want people to like the video. I am still human. I still want them to enjoy it. I want them to learn from it. And I want them to share it with people. And that was the goal. So this has been a huge change for me. Your, your, your podcast couldn't have come a more a perfect time because it's, it's, I have changed the way I think about this stuff and do it to the point that it, it, it's so different going forward that I, we're now working on video too. So we're getting that process, scripting, rehearsing, trying, making it feel natural. And 
one of the reasons people get nervous for presentations is they haven't gone through it because their brain is panicking. They're like, what are you going to say next? Why is that person looking at me that way? What's going on? You hop on Zoom and you're like, why is everybody looking down? What are they doing? Are they distracting? Is my talk not good enough? And what they're doing is looking at the screen, but their camera is up above the screen. And so it looks like they're just looking down. They're disinterested. And, and so that was a huge, again, all these learning curves for me. So, so obviously like online is a different environment. Like you say, the conference is missing. And I imagine there's a lot, of, lot to do there with just energy of warm bodies in the room and an audience to, to play with. So let's say uh, 31 December this year, Corona goes away and you go back into conferences for 2021. Yeah. Are you going back to a place where you were, where you weren't present and uh, your ego, your brand took over? Or are, we, are, we, are we looking now at the beginning of a Scott Stratton who is a bit more uh, crafted and considerate and prepared? What, what's it look like? Well, that's, that's the thing, right? During this really bad part of our, our history, you have this great pause for myself and for Allison who have the privilege that that we're, we, we own a home and we, we don't have to necessarily panic right away, just sit back and stay, okay, so what do we want? And, and what I don't want is what I had before, and which is that I can, I can get by because of natural talent. I remember I had a, a professor in college, uh, Lori Kondo, uh, who's the one who got me the job as a professor afterwards, after I was a student. And she, she knew me to a T, which was I would show up late to her class, like an hour late, but I would stay an hour late after the class talking to her about the subject. Like I loved this stuff, but she also knew I was, I was lazy. And then the, my third, my final year, uh, we had a presentation and I, I aced every presentation. I got, I got A's every time, didn't put any effort in. It was easy. And she's like, I'm pairing you up with the hardest worker in this class, Tracy, and you need to pull your own weight, Scott. I don't want an A. An A is no effort for you. I want an A plus. And so we did it and Tracy worked hard and I drove her bananas, drove her bananas because I didn't work. And I showed up, I did the talk, best talk of the whole class. She looked at me at the end of it in front of the class and says, you mailed that in, didn't you? I'm like, you didn't rehearse. You just talked. I'm like, yep. She's like, you'll see it one day, right? That skating by on natural talent is wonderful. But then you have the other people who are working their tail off, getting better, getting better. And eventually they eclipse you. Eventually. Talent is great, but talent plus effort is unbeatable. Right? I, think, I think business is a combination of luck, timing, skill, and effort. And those, th those four bars go up and down depending on the issue and the time of year and, and where you are and circumstances. But I always thought as a speaker up till a few years ago, I was just like, I'm really good at this versus am I the best person to work with? Have I prepared best? Well, no. And that's the thing with this is even, even if I can still be, you know, go back to keynotes, which is still me just telling stories. I'm a storyteller. I still will tell two or three stories, but I will even, I could research their industry more. I can make it more customized than, than just saying it's customized because I changed the word customer to client. Understanding their competition a little better. Just even, even, even if that means a joke can land even better that I understand their competition more. Like if I go talk to, uh, um, do you guys have um, both banks and credit unions? In Australia, do you have? Yeah. yeah. So credit unions are, more, are kind of uh, community-oriented and, and kind yeah. of nonprofit, and banks are you know institutions. And uh, yeah. so I knew then, you know, when I make a, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to a credit union audience, and I, I make a joke off the cuff, and I'm like, oh, I guess banks would be like that, wouldn't they? And everybody's like, yay! Like that's their trigger point of you know where where I could research that more for other industries, and that more work never hurts. You know what I mean? Like it's just like more education, learning more never hurts you, right? And I just, I just. I stopped, I stopped learning. And when you stop learning, you stop growing. And that's not a smart thing to do. 
I think we heard from both previous guests. I, I definitely remember Grant Baldwin and Jay Bear saying it just like, it doesn't matter where you are, what you can do is work. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, like we're talking to the Scott Stratton who's saying exactly the same thing. And you're going through that process of like, you're well known in the speaking industry for good reason. It's still like having this realization that at some point you've, you can put in the work as well. It's just, I can see, I can see like the humbling experience going on here. Very much, very much so. And, and it's been a greatly, and by the way, Grant and Jay, two great humans um, hmm. um, that you've had on the show. Uh, this has been, you know, before all this, you know, I was fairly near the top of the mountain in the industry. And you, you make that mythical kind of vanity rung of a million dollars a year speaking and you, you do this and you're kind of flying high with it. And then you, you get back and this all hits. And I had before I had more, more money than time. So I had people to do this stuff. Obviously we have people, right? I, I showed up at a, I was like a, a, a DJ at some kind of resort club. I'd show up with a, a USB key and like, there you go. That's my equipment. And you'd plug it into your system and I'd go do my thing. That was it. I'd speak for 45 minutes or an hour. You know, I'd be on the road and I'd go, that's it. My job was 45 minutes long. And then this all comes. And, um, and now I have more time than money, you know, when your calendar stops, you know, like the, most people you're, that's an issue. And so then I had to, to, to do all this, to make these videos, to do any kind of live or webinar, I had to learn all this stuff. And I had to, so learning video and photography and DSLRs and reading from a teleprompter, Ecamm software, Final Cut Pro, audio editing, audio interfaces, audio boosting, uh, chords. It was like, I had all people, I'm now, so the video we put out yesterday, I'm like, well, for disclosure, you should meet my production crew. And it was just a cut shot of me adjusting lights and the camera and everything else. And so it is it certainly is very humbling. And, and also now I know why we pay so much for post-production and video because that video only took me a week and a half to edit. Yeah. You know, it's just like a 12 minute video. And I'm just like cutting and changing and doing. And, but here's the thing. I found my passion in it. And again, I'm a, I'm a creative person and you only create so many PowerPoint slides. You know what I mean? Like if the, the creation isn't really there. Once you, once you, if you have a set talk and you're doing the same one, you're tweaking, you're not creating. And I, and I do have a creative personality that I kind of put to bed and I, you know, I'm down here. I mean, we call this a lab. It's in the basement and I'm down here eight hours a day. This create, I've worked harder in the past few months and I've worked in the past 20 years. And that's a thing of privilege. Like I was able to not, you know, I could just fly around and speak and tell the world the things that made me angry about their industry. And then they would applaud me for it. And I would go home and then I'd be upset because I didn't get my, the almonds I got on the flight weren't warmed. You know, and it's like, you know, this is just the world. And I'm just like, eh, I'm here, everyone. And, and now you're, so we got to sit down, Alice and I sit down and say, so what do we want to do? And, and, and one of our biggest things for us is, is to help people. And like our front hallway has a big poster in it that says, you don't need a reason to help someone. And that's really what fills our, our, our hearts. And so if we could make, you know, do things and help out locally, but also if we ended up making a virtual training and a program and the unmarketing Academy, and then we could give it to people who, who are in school and stuff that we don't have to, that I'm not scalable, but we can help educate people on certain things without, you know, if we want to give it to people away for free, we can do that. And that really, that really makes us happy to be able to do something like that. Yeah. And you, I guess you're finding new ways of connecting with people as well, because that's your whole kind of brand is about engagement and talking to people really, isn't it? Yeah. The, my, my world is like, I, I got known, really, I got known because of Twitter in uh, 2009, 2010. Um, I was one of the biggest, biggest Canadians on Twitter until Justin Bieber messed it all up for me when he got on the platform. Oh, damn it, Justin. <laughs> right. 
thank you. And so I, I kind of blew up on Twitter. That's actually how I got the first book deal and, and how I started this speaking kind of st on this, this version of my speaking career. And so social media, you know, is my bag, you know, that's what unmarketing was originally based on was social stop marketing, start engaging. And, you know, through the decade, those things that we have re-released the book like three times with updated stuff because of the shifting of the platforms and what has changed. And we changed, like we changed the subtitle of unmarketing two years ago from stop marketing, start engaging. It's now, it's like, it's like scribbled out and now it has a handwritten, it's on the cover and it says everything has changed and nothing is different because it's, it was no longer social media was a new thing. Yeah. It became part of the, the collective and it was understood. And, and, and so you want to update the book saying, okay, now y'all get it, but you don't. You know, and, and then we kind of went with that and, and from there and, and kind of expanded it and then, and then unmar unbranding and unselling and it all came out. So it's been a wild social media ride. And I, but I've also been reconnected with it more because when you get so busy, when you're on the road, you're not connecting as much. Yeah. Right. right? You know, you just like, and I, I'm, I'm a hermit on the road. I'm just like, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm extroverted as they come. You know, I can make friends with a tree. But when I'm speaking, when I'm on the road, like I'm exhausted. Like when I, when I, you know, look, I'm not mining coal. I'm not underwater welding. I'm not doing backbreaking work. But uh, mentally, I get off stage. I go for an hour and I, I give everything. I just, I flail. I give, I, I have about a half hour to an hour after talk until I crash. So I spend most of the time on the road just in my hotel room and just because I know myself and um, I have no idea where I was going with that, but um, that's where we got to. Um, I want to kind of go back to the, because um, I really like that tagline, the everything is different and nothing. Everything's changed, but nothing's different. That's what I'm going on. Yeah, I like that. Do you, do you think that is a little bit like that currently yeah. or has everything changed now? It's been funny because the actual talk was, we, we had one of the talks was called the at the age of this disruption, everything has changed and nothing is different. Yeah. And then I went on and did kind of like a pop in for a zoom for a, a, a client from last year. I popped in two months ago to one of their meetings to say hi. And, uh, and I'm like, I know I said everything has changed, but nothing is different, but this is a little much. Like, you know, so like the, that title we came up with a couple of years ago because it was about disruption. And, and one of the things about doing talks and stuff is you want to make sure your talk is still accurate and authentic, but also pointed towards what's going on, right? Right. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna hire a Twitter keynote right now, like like six months ago, like talking about what is Twitter, unless you are literally the founders of Twitter, right? But they did in 2010. And so it's always keeping a mind of that your my content, you always got to keep an ear to the ground. So now though, it is this is an incredible, this is not a disruption, this is a crisis. And so I say to people right now, just like any other disruption, but especially right now, how you behave in a crisis is how you'll be remembered long after. And that we have to remember that. So it's like we, we just shift our stuff. So now we talk more about the humanity of the stuff that, that we have to cut each other some slack, that we have to be kind. And, that, and I spent 10 years getting mad at things, you know, at brands and bad marketing and unethical things. You know, we got a company fined over a million dollars for kind of fake app store reviews and stuff. We don't sit down when these things happen. But now you're just like, this is bigger. This is so much bigger. And so what can we do to support? So now we've been focusing on um, because not only do we have, you know, with COVID, um, but we have racial tensions going on right now. And, and so you're like, where, what can I, how can I elevate the people that need elevating? How can I amplify Black Lives Matter? How can I do these things to make them loan my platform to those causes and, and try to do the good you want? And that takes, that takes some thought and some time as well, because it's a, it's a lot of stuff happening right now. And you stick your, your, your head out and say something, you, you, you got to stand by it. And that's good. That's a good thing. Yeah. Certainly in post 2007, the iPhone, you know, in this online world, 
everything that's said out there will stick with you and forms part of your brand. And I think everything like I'm hearing it, you know, you've spent 10 years elevating, getting angry at the world. And now you've got like a, a place that you can leverage, whether you want to carry on that path or go somewhere else. Right. Um, I am a, a little bit interested because you're well known for your millennial bit, the millennial rant, or I'm not sure what you call it, right? <laughs> yeah, the millennial rant. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like I've heard it a few times in a few different places. Yeah. I guess, can we touch on like, how did that, come to be and how did it change over time to either yeah where it is now or where it might be going if anywhere yeah for sure uh, so the the clip and the gist of it for the listeners is when i go i i start on this millennial rant it's, it's you know it's it's 45 year old guy getting mad at younger people and i always ask them to raise their hand and i'm like who here is you know millennials are actually between the ages of you know 20 and 38 or whatever that range is and i ask people to raise their hands who's in that group and every every conference you have some and I always feign my surprise. I'm like, oh, you're in the room. Okay, so um, uh, I'm going to translate what us fellow old people mean when we say that we're millennials. You know, it's people younger than us and we don't like you. And I just hang on that word. I just stand. I just wait and the audience laughs. And, and I'm like, it's not you. It's, it's you. And then I go in and I keep ripping on and ripping on and ripping on them. And what I'm doing is I'm setting it up. I'm setting it up for the flip. And I'm getting them. And I can see, you could, I could see it in their eyes and the audience, how the millennials are like, okay, enough. Like, like they're getting frustrated. Like you're, you're, I'm, I'm beating that dead horse, but I'm waiting for it. And then I pull up an article, which is three slides of all text from a Newsweek article. I just keep reading it. The, the, the youth of today move out of your parents' basements and get a job. And that's how it ends. And the older people in the audience, you're like, damn right. Millennials are like, what? You just spent three slides ripping on us again. And I'm like, this is from Newsweek, October 31st, 1993. And it wasn't about millennials, it was about my generation, Gen X. And then I pull up my high school grad photo, which is glorious. And the whole audience goes, oh, damn. And all the millennials are like, yeah. And so I get all the millennials on my side, all the older people. They're just like, okay, all right, all right. So with that bit, how that bit came out, I don't study speakers. I'm, I, I study comedians. And um, I study a whole swath of them. I love comedians and um, both the new crop and the old crop of comedians and because of timing and cadence and going for the laugh after the laugh, you know, the, the boom, boom. And, and so I study those things. And, and so I was at a gig in Buffalo for five, six years ago and Allison was with me um, and I'm about to go on stage. It was for um, a higher education uh, internet people, uh, higher ed web, great event, love the people there. And I, I, I'm getting mad because I'm seeing at all these conferences, they're like, how to deal with millennials and, and, and how do you sell them a Lenny? And I'm just like, they're, they're humans. Like, it's like, we're just like, we're trying to create a bias because we create a bias and we can create a stereotype. And, and so that was making me very angry. And my, my personality is very contrarian. And, and so when the masses say, well, this is the, the conclusion, I'm like, hang on. And so I'm a, I have one foot on the stair, on the riser to go up and they're reading my bio. And Scott Zaratin was all this stuff, it's fancy, but really doesn't mean anything. And he also did this and he's talking to the bio. And I look at Allison and I'm just, I'm steaming about this millennial stuff. I turned to her and I said, baby, I'm going to lose it about this millennial stuff. And she looks at me and goes, go get him. And I go up. And since I have a few stories and stuff, I can play with it. And it's like improv, but in a keynote, you know, getting paid money. And so I go up there. And so I just have a thought and I just say it. And so I don't, I don't think this consciously, I'm just going to put it out there. If, if I find a spot that fits, it's going. And then halfway through, I was like, here. And I went, look, and I just said the line, right? It's millennials. It's people younger than us. And we don't like you. And they lost their mind laughing. And so in my head, I'm just like, okay, boop. 
mark that off. That was pretty much, and then I just flipped it. And I flipped it, but not the same way. I just kind of went, did it, and I just, the joke ended up being, okay, look, yeah, the old people are just angry. But then the next time I did it, I pushed it out more and pushed it out more. Then I thought, I went back and I said, okay, so how do I really, really flip it on them? I like doing that. I like flipping the script on people because they're, I've got them and I can flip them, but you have to do it with care because they're trusting you. You don't want to pull a fast one on the audience, right? You don't want to make them feel stupid necessarily. But that's why I don't do millennials at the start of my talk because I'm full-blown Stratton then. You can't unleash the Stratton at the start. People will run away. People will go, what is this man-bund bearded guy? Is it, why is the sound guy getting angry at us on stage? Like that's what they're thinking right now. And so when you go through, the bit expands. But the problem of kind of mining for a bit and then hitting gold is something has to come out of the talk. Like I had a pretty tight hour up there and I have my main story. I have a Josh E. Ritz Carlton story. I have a good thing at the end. I have these reviews and they have all worked because they've just worked through practice on stage though. Never, not the rehearsal, but the practice like I was talking about. But I had a rant in there and I can't have too many rants, right? Because if you're just ranting the whole time, nobody's paying you to do that, right? They, we get it. We all hate stuff. But I had my middle was a QR code rant at the time. I have a book called QR Codes Kill Kittens, like all these type of stuff. Like, and my rant was about using marketing technology to show that we're using a technology. Like, I have no problem with QR codes or kittens, but it was the fact that we use them. So that turned into a rant, which was on impulse again. But I realized that was becoming a little bit old. That was less in the forefront anyways. And the millennial stuff was really strong in the atmosphere, in the ether of the world. And I'm like, that's a better bit. So you can't get married too much to your stories, to your bits, if it suits it better. But on the flip side, I had to make sure that QR codes wasn't stale because I had said it too many times. I, that's one of the biggest mistakes the presenter gets is it's like, this stuff is getting boring. And like, no, if it's different audiences, it's the first time they've heard it. And I've told that millennial rant, I've done that bit, oh, by now 200 times on stage. And almost every time somebody comes up to me and goes, that was such a great, just off the cuff rant. And it started as one, but then I worked it. I worked the bit and then I worked the timing. And it's not about sitting there and recording and saying, hmm, I just want, I, I know it's real time on stage. I'm like, I didn't land right. And I try to joke a few times that I think is funny. And I'm like, that didn't land right. And by the fifth time, I'm like, okay, I guess it's not funny. But it's, it's like, so I, I'm trying to prove the audience wrong. I'm like, but this is funny. But then I also had the personality where I call the audience out when they don't laugh at something I think is funny. Or I'll say something and I'm like, and I'll stop. And I'm like, so the joke is, and, and then that'll make them laugh. So it's like a recovery laugh that you'll get from it, but that's through just trial and error. That's very interesting because I believe that's a, a bit of a no-no in like stand-up comedy is like explain the joke. <laughs> yes, very much so. Except that what you're, you're breaking that almost that fourth wall with them. Yeah. You know, so you go out to that, but you, that's a no-no, but unless it works for your personality, if you are okay waiting out there like that, then you're okay. But you got to be ready for some blowback. When you're playing with humor, well, it's subjective. You've got to be so careful. When people ask me about, you know, doing humor in talks, I'm like, yeah, if you're funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like you never insert a joke for joke's sake. Like even right now. So I'm in Canada, right? And I used to have a little bit at the start. And my problem was, especially in the last couple of years over the past 10 years, it's I was going for the joke almost too much because it's intoxicating. And what happens is every time I, I keep a joke in or put a new one in, some of the content comes out. And I see, you know, I just like, it's like Scott does an hour of comedy and that's not what they're paying for. They're paying for these certain principles we messaged, yes, delivered through the funny way. That outcome that you're talking about. 
bingo. And I wasn't looking at that. I was just looking at that. I'm just getting the last. And as long as the, the clients were happy and everybody was, was giving me great feedback and I'm like, I'm just, I'm pushing myself towards being a comedian and a, a business speaker who is funny can do really well and gets paid really well. A comedian who understands business does not. That's a big switch. Uh, a, a, one of my best friends, Ron Tite, who's a brilliant speaker, owns an agency, but is also se- uh, improv trained, Second City improv trained and was a comedian. He was a corporate comedian and he couldn't get over, you know, five grand, four grand, three grand for a talk. And then he switched himself to being a business speaker who's hilarious and he could get 7,500, 10,000, 12,000. It's almost like you're too busy being the performer than being... And that's what I was turning in. That's what I was turning into. And that's not kind of the way you want to be able to, to, to do that. Yeah, right. I also don't know if I answered your question because I also want, again, see, you see how I understand why I need to script. Do you understand, you, you are getting it in real time right now. Because you could be listening right now and say, you know what, that's a great answer, Scott. You didn't answer his question though. <laughs> so, and I have forgotten it already. So yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's I've right. done the, I do the same thing. <laughs> As long as we're as long as we're two peers, peas in a pod, I'll be good. As long as we're we're tight like that, we've got the Canozzi thing going. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I had a moment earlier this week. My neighbor came over. She's sixteen, and she was helping me with TikTok. Yep. And I had this moment, and she was like paying out millennials about how like old we were getting. And I thought, wow, I'm in this transition period where I'm moving up to that like I'm the one that's now being teased. <laughs> It was just this awful moment of like, wow, millennials are no longer like no. the young, hip, on top, cool ones anymore. No, us Gen Xers um, have been sitting on the front porch in our rocking chairs for a long time now, telling y'all to get off our lawn. And we've just pulled up an extra chair and millennials are joining us. Yes. Oh welcome. God. Welcome yes. to the sore back uh, society. And um, um, we all meet at 7 a.m. because we have to wake up to pee anyway. So just be here and we're good. Yeah, it's all a wonderful. When you realize you just lose hope, you just all get together, right? And that's how it works. And Yeah, I'm getting a taste of that. Yeah, that's what, but that's what it is. But people still say millennials now. They're like millennials. I'm like, they're 36. Like, it's like we're, you're talking like they're 15 years. What you're trying to say is people younger. That, that, but that because of that joke. That literally is, I actually that's mean why that. That's it works. I literally, that's what, that's why, the, exactly, it's why the joke works. Because when people laugh, the older people are doing the laugh nod. They're like, you're damn right, we hate you. Like that's, that's part of humor, right? Is getting the, the buy-in from the group. My first love, you know, one of my favorite comedians, one of the first ones I loved, it was Seinfeld. He's just talking about whatever's going on. And, and, and comedy is really, I think it was the line, I, I, I'm doing a disservice to the com- comedy industry, not remembering who said it, but it's like comedy is just a mi- sh- showing somebody a mirror, right? Like that's really what it is. And, um, and I really believe that. So when I can work those things to make a point, but you see the whole millennial bit, the funniest part, I think of my whole talk right in the middle is also the, the best points I can make because it's talking about bias. It's talking about how and that's in marketing, sales, hiring, that's an, and depending on the audience and see, that's my favorite part about that bit is I can flip it to tailor it to the audience. So if the audience is all recruiters, I just had one, it was one of my last ones before all this, I spoke to a room of recruiters. And so I can flip that millennial stuff to about bias in hiring. And I also have a human resources background, so I can talk about that. And that's the beauty of certain funny bits in a talk is the ones that can pivot for you. If it can help make the point that you're really trying to make, because it's not about millennials and, and ripping on them or then ripping on old people. It's the point that bias hurts us in life and business. And that's the point I'm trying to make. And as soon here, and this is the, the best part for me, 
I took QR codes, kill kittens out, which made people think they should do marketing better. But when I put millennials in immediately, the feedback I was getting afterwards was they loved, they thought it was funny. They'd say, are you a comedian and all that type of stuff, which is wonderful to hear. But they said, you made me think about my relationship with my teenager differently. Wow. And I'm like, I cannot, I cannot top that. When I can have somebody think about their relationship with their own kids better, then I'm like, oh, oh, this goes deeper. So then I'm like, I have to work it more. So let me go more. So what was funny about that Newsweek article? So then I, I doubled down on it. So I, I show the reveal, 93, haha, my grad photo. And I'm like, let's keep playing then. So then I bring up another quote and it's about the youth of today. They don't listen to their parents and everybody's writing a book or something like that. And I asked the audience, I said, when do you think this quote was from? So now they're playing with me. And so they just start shouting out. They're like, the 50s. Somebody's like, the 60s. Somebody's like, ha the 1800s. And I'm like, it's from the year four. I'm sorry, 40 BC. It's actually before zero. From Cicero. And I said, we literally, since the dawn of time, have hated young people. And everybody's just like, but then now we're all together. So what I do is I take it, I start ripping on us because that's a Newsweek article. I rip on boomers because they are the ones who hated us, Gen Xers. Right. And then I make something funny and then I say, don't worry, Boomer didn't hear the joke and ha ha ha. And they start booing me and we just play. We play depending on the audience, depending on their, their reception level. But that spot there is where you double down. But then you bring everybody back together. Because now it's like, do you remember being, you know, crapped on when you were young? Now we're back to the same point, meaning we're all in this together. Age is only a number on your driver's license, right? We, we spend the first 20 or so years of our lives trying to look older and the last 60 or so trying to look younger. And that's a problem. And that allows me for the silence, the laughter, the amens, all those things, get their emotions up, get those endorphins up. And then I can really hit them with something I, I, I hope is poignant for them that can make them think because their minds are fully open then. And that's the trick for me with humor. Humor is a, a door opener for my point. What my problem was is when I just stopped opening that door, I just went for the next laugh. And then it's just trying to be funny. And I don't think that was the point of what I was hired to do, right? And I, I realized that after a long time. I feel like I have so much to say and the issue is we'll end up sitting here and it'll be three hours from when we started recording <laughs> and I feel like we should maybe make an effort to wind this podcast up. So, I mean, we're talking to the unmarketing, the unpodcast, the unblog guy. Um, that's your thing. Undoing, you know, let's call it conventional wisdom and getting people to do things a little bit differently or think about their kids differently. Yeah. Do you have any speaking advice for you know, speakers, audience that's listening in uh, about speaking that maybe goes against the norm there? I, I honestly, I, I taught hundreds and hundreds of, I watched hundreds and hundreds of student presentations to a semester per student, four classes a semester. You, know, you sit through it all and you watch and it's no different with adults. You know, work is like high school and college, but you get paid, right? It's the same idea. We all have insecurities and realizing that almost everybody standing up in front of a room, almost everybody uh, feels imposter syndrome. And that if you realize nobody cares about you, it sounds morbid, but it's not. Nobody cares about you up there. They just want you to finish. You know what I mean? Like they just want you to give us the information. So if you view yourself as the vehicle for transferring the information, it's a little less pressure. Nobody cares if you screw up. Nobody's hoping you screw up. And then rehearse, practice, walk through it. What's making you nervous? And nerves cause a couple different things. But one of the biggest things is you feel unprepared or you feel like an imposter. Well, look into that. Why? Are you involved in the subject? Do you love the subject? And if you don't, do you, have you made the points you want to make? And if it's too much, take some stuff out. 
we overstuff talks. We overstuff presentations a lot of the times. I think we really do because what we're doing is compensating for the fact that we don't want to talk ourselves. So we'll put a lot of stuff on PowerPoint and we'll just read it. It's a, it's a crutch. It's safety. And, and the first article I ever wrote, I ever wrote in my life for my business was called The Power Is Not The Point about PowerPoint. And I'm not like those people who says, you get death to PowerPoint, death to slides. I'm like, no, you've just seen really bad slides. They can work, right? They can work really well if they're helping accent a point. But we try to overstuff it so we don't have to be just kind of free flowing the whole time. The best thing you can do for any kind of presentation or meeting with your presentation is finish early. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just like nobody's ever said, my God, I, you're supposed to go five more minutes. Now, I, I don't, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry for saying that because drastically early is not good either especially if you're at a conference or something like that and your next speaker is up in an hour and you go 10 minutes and you're like, thank you. And they're all like, Hey, and this happened once to me, by the way, I was going down for sound check for an event and I was due to be in the room at, to show up for sound check at eight 30, but I came in at eight. I don't know why. Maybe I had a, maybe I, I had some sort of stomach. Ill, and I was just not myself. Had to get up to pay, right? Right. Well, bingo. Thank you. That's, that's a callback. <laughs> I like that. So you, I went down early and I went, and I was just hanging in the back. Because when you hang in the back of the room, if you can pick up something from the previous speaker, and all you got to say is, as, as Carrie said previously, if it's authentic, it's really nice to tie in those things with the previous presenter. It's really, it makes that presenter feel good as well, and it helps some continuity in the conference. So I was there just picking up. And I just walked in the back, and I'm standing there, and it's 8.15. And the person finished, and I'm like, well, I don't know who's going to go for 15 minutes. Because I wasn't due on, I'm sorry, till 9.00. Okay, so I was supposed to be at 8.30 sound check, have some, some buffer, 8.15. MC gets up and goes, all right, finished early. All right, next up, Scott Stratton is the president of Unmarked. I'm not miked. I'm not even supposed to be. I was supposed to still not have pants on. I'm still supposed to be in my room. And I just look at the sound guy, and he just mouths a few words to me. He's like, oh, and I just, he literally throws me a laugh. And I catch it, wire it as I'm walking up. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I clip. On my pocket, Scott Stratton, I walk up, I'm like, hey, everybody, I make a man bun joke and off I go. The point is, though, is that it's not the job of the audience either to give you sympathy as well. You know I mean? So it's just like, just do it. I remember I was, I was like, I thought I was deathly ill a couple of years ago in Seattle for an event, 4,000 realtors. The video is on YouTube, actually, of me speaking to them. I had the worst, I was so sick, I was so sick. And I was there for 48 hours and for 46 hours, I was in bed, like sleeping. And I was, I was just, I couldn't move. And I was texting a friend of mine, Mitch Joel. He was a great speaker and friend here in Canada. And I said, oh, dude, I'm, I can't, I'm so sick. And he goes, do me a favor. Don't tell the audience you're sick. You're a professional. And of course, half, part of it, I'm mad. I'm like, you tell me what to, I'm like, you're right. And I went out there and I nailed it because I go out, as soon as I start speaking, I don't know about you, I, I, just, I just snap into it. And it doesn't matter. I'm just in my own world. I have no adrenaline. I, have, I feel no adrenaline or no nerves. I just, I'm just in the moment. And I can just, I can perform. I've done it so many times. And I got off and I fainted into the couch. And then the MC came out and said, do you guys realize that he has 102 fever and he's, he was in bed? And then they gave me a second standing ovation while I'm lying on the couch. And I realized that it was about your job is to, is to transfer information. Your job isn't to get the audience to, to like you. Your job isn't to get the audience to feel sympathy for you. The best thing you can do for them is give them the information they want in a best way. They can possibly absorb it. Yeah. Also watch, but also to help yourself. The best thing I did for the class is I made the class give them feedback. Every single presenter, they were all nervous to go. Every single one, they sat down and I asked the class, give me one good thing they did. Give me one thing they can work on. Everybody got that, including me. 
I went up and did something and I said, give me the feedback. And then I tracked those subconscious fillers, the ums or the likes, and I tracked those. And I would tally them just with check marks. And then I asked the person, how many ums did you think they said? They said uh, four or five. And I'm like, 23. So bringing that from the subconscious to their conscious mind, I was them to rectify it. And then I'm like, when you do that, when you hear an um, when you're practicing, stop. And get that into your head that that um is a filler. That, and you should be okay with pauses. You notice I did a pause there, right? Between words. Like that's how, but you have to be okay with pauses. And that to me is one of the biggest problems with speaking, with presenters, with meetings, with anything like that, is you're too afraid to let a thought just sit. For a sec, I don't mean 12 seconds and staring at people because then you should leave. That's weird. But I mean, just a, like think how long a second is. That's how long a second is. But that feels like five minutes for most people standing in front of people. I love the pause. I, but I had to work in the pause. I had to realize it because I speak very quickly. I am actually trying my best right now to speak slower. It is an effort for me because of how I naturally, I get excited. I get talking but I also can mumble when I get excited too. And then I'm not enunciating stuff. So it's, it's learning. It's watching yourself with a critical eye. Most people do that on video. I didn't because I love watching myself because I, I have an ego issue with that. But then I started watching it with an eye of, okay, so what can I improve? And I noticed it early on. I had a tell. My tell wasn't mostly ums. I do have one. I say so. Notice it if you watch my videos, even now, when I'm bridging two thoughts and I'm going back to a slide, I'll say so you'll notice it. And it drives me bananas. Once I started recognizing it, now it drives me bananas. I've done it probably in this interview a few times and I don't even know it, but I used to do something physically. I used to wipe, kind of wipe my nose with my hand kind of going down for no reason. There was no itch. I had no snot issue going on, but, and it was what it was doing. It was muffling my mouth. And that's the only reason I knew that is because I heard it on a microphone once. And I said, what am I doing with my hand? And so I then realized, okay, and it was either remembering that or doing something else. So maybe put a thumb in my pocket, which guards my hand down a bit when I'm resting it. And that's this watching and learning and saying, what can I work on? Finding somebody you trust, a colleague, a friend, you know, anybody who can give you honest feedback, because usually when people are asking for feedback, they're asking for praise. So you got to be careful with that. And speaking is the most, one of the most vulnerable things there is. You are the thing. So you have to be very careful with that. That when you ask somebody, when somebody says, can you look at my, my I did a rehearsal for my talk or my, my presentation, or my meeting. Can you give me some feedback? You need to clarify. You need to clarify. Do you want, what, do, what are you hoping to do with the feedback? Is it this? Is it this or this? Do you want me to help improve it? Do you want me to give you some reassurance? Like, what is that? I mean, usually maybe people stop and like, actually, you know what? I'm not ready for real feedback. That's good. That's good. It's one of the reasons why I stopped consulting so long ago is because people didn't want real feedback. That They were just like, no, tell me it's good. I'm like, I'm not, it's not what I do. It's not my thing. So get trusted feedback and then rehearse and present and have that person catch you on it. And like, oh, that's this, or that's this, or you're saying the um there. Like, I need you guys to do that. Go, go, just go, go to this podcast that we just recorded right now. And then tell me how many so's I said. So right there, right there. I just did it. <laughs> I just did it. I just did it right there. But that's what I mean. When it's in the conscious mind, then I can try to improve that. So that's what I'm working on. Over 500 keynotes, hundreds of training sessions selling air, teaching for seven years, I'm still catching them. So when people say, Scott, you make this effortless, and that's one of the wonder most wonderful compliments I've, I get when I'm speaking, you just look so laid back and effortless. It takes so much work to make it look like there's no work. 
Yes. Yeah. So much. Oh, that's so true. I really like what you said a bit earlier, but no one actually cares. You're right. Like, you know, no one's hoping you fail, obviously. And we say that a lot as well, but you're right. No one cares. Right. And look, it's either one or the other. Look, you can't go to saying, I'm going to do a talk, but nobody cares. And then you're going to turn around and not say, awesome, right? Nobody cares. So you can be you up there. And they're like, oh no, I have to, because I'm like, well, I thought you said they didn't care. Your mind doesn't let you escape from it sometimes. You're just like, well, the presentation is going to go bad. So that's going to fail. But I'm like, well, well, no, because the present, it, you don't matter. It's the information. They're like, well, yeah, but then they're all looking at me. I'm like, no, you, my problem is I try to help teach people, but I don't have the nerves. I think really important part of teaching is having some empathy, having some understanding of where somebody's coming from. And it's, that, that's why it's hard for me. That's why I don't have a professional speaking course is because a lot of things I do, I'm not thinking about. It's just, they, they work with my Jack Russell Terrier spastic kind of personality and it just works for me. But the first way to be like me is me, is be me, you know? <laughs> and I don't know how to do some of the stuff I do. So it's hard with that empathy. And I've been working really hard on understanding um, why to the point that it's on the shelf right now, but we've been making a passion project for a while called Unspeakable, the truth about our biggest fear. And it's an investigation, me figuring out what is making people nervous, why, and how we can change that because if it's one of people's biggest fears. So we've been working on that for a while. It's gonna, it'll take some time. We put it on the shelf for now, but because I'm fascinated by something I don't, I don't understand. And I think it will help people because I think if you're a good presenter, I think one of the best skills you can possibly have, which is why what you guys talk about is so important. The best skill, the best, literally the best skill in sales, in business, in getting hired and getting promoted is understanding how to speak in front of people. I will go to the grave with that. I, I is one of the most important skills and one of the hardest skills to get because of people getting nervous, but not wanting to do it. And I think that being a better presenter is the best ROI you can get, I think, on any skill set. I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we often say as well, it's not like, you know, you learn the violin and you can sit in a dark room and practice until you're better. Speaking, you've, just, you've got to do it in front of people. Like you've got to suck in front of people. <laughs> Yeah. I remember my, one of my first talks to the public to, over 20 years ago, I was hired by the Canadian government. It was like a, a, a week celebrating, in, I don't know, employment or whatever it was. And they're like, you're speaking here at Maple View. And I'm like, that's a mall. Why am I speaking at a mall? They're like, oh, we set it up for this employment week and you're no, all good. It's got a stage. And I'm like, okay. And I went and my first ever talk in public was in front of the food court where everybody just orders fries and hot dogs and and the only people there was my family and then whoever was just happened to be eating their lunch and was subjected to this guy <laughs> talking in a bad speaker. And there was a two story, it was two floors, a mall. So people were above, they were heckling me. I was getting heckled by high school students on their lunch break and I would have heckled me too. And then my first ever one I ran, which was a few weeks later, which a few weeks later when Owen was just born, like a few weeks afterwards and he was, he was there. The room was, I, I, was the, it was the, I booked the local library, a, a breakout room, and I was all set to go, and I paid for it, and, and I picked out a burnt orange shirt that I had to go, and I was in a wedding party because it was awesome and it was sassy, and I went into the room and pre-checked it. I hired a video crew, 20 years ago, so full broadcast cameras to make a demo video that I would have manufactured into VHS cassettes, and I paid them a obscene amount of money, and I showed up, and I walked in with a burnt orange shirt, and somebody the day before had painted the walls pink. Okay. I'll send you the picture of me in front of that wall. So you'll enjoy it greatly. And then uh, seven people showed up, including my previously mentioned family and two other people that were there for yoga, but it, that class didn't start for an hour and it was horrible. And so 
we all got to start somewhere. <laughs> I must admit, I have never, let alone my first speaking experience, never spoken to people who were eating poutine at the time. Dude, poutine, I, you love how you brought poutine in. Good on, good on you, mate. Good for you. I love that uh, you said poutine because it's an actual Canadian food. I appreciate that. Because, you know, I, I think from, you know, Australians and Canadians bond on the fact that people just assume all of this stuff about us. And uh, people walk up and they're like, where's your pet polar bear, eh? What are you talking about? And I'm just like, can you leave? Can you just leave right now? And poutine is one of our, our cherished things. My assumption was you guys all like you ride to work on your moose and you drink maple <laughs> syrup for lunch the same as like we ride a kangaroo to work like that's yeah. actually what we do right gonna i got to hop on it and have a have a foster's lager and a shrimp on the barbie and all that crap yeah i know that it's a it's too but and one of the things why canadians and australians get along so well is half of banff in alberta and half of whistler in british columbia are australians they're just amazing and we went there had friends moved out and hung out with them it was just like so you meet Australian, you're just immediate best friends. And it's just like a bond we have with, with Canada. And I, my only gig, we were talking before we started recording that when I was in Australia, the MC happened to be American because it was like a tour, it was like three, four speakers and that one of the keynotes and MC. And of course, so he's American. So he introduced me and he's like, and our next up is Scott and he's from Canada. And you all know, you all know Canada is a America's hat. No. And I'm like, and see, one of the problems is people think Canadians are polite. It's a stereotype. And one of the, one of the bios I use is I'm on this planet to refute the fact that the, you think Canadians are polite. And so I get up on stage and I'm like, thank you, sir. Um, did you know that he is from America? That's known as uh, Canada's underpants. Um, and if you look at the map, you figure out what Florida is, right? And so then I just start talking and the whole, because we bond on the fact that we are not um, American, I said that and the room erupted. It was glorious. So always get the audience on your side one way or the other. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I, but I did have something. Is it, is, are Tim Tams Australian? Yes. yes. Yep, that's ours. We have some Australian friends. Shout out to Andrew and Alicia. They, had a, they got us hooked on those and they are straight fire. They're so good. They're so good. And uh, not, a, not, not doing that Vegemite thing, but. I'll say you didn't get hooked on the Vegemite. No, no, I don't understand that at all. But oh. hey, we're a nation that puts fries and cheese curds with gravy. So what do I know? Yeah, I um, was in, it was actually in New York, but with three Canadian friends. Yeah. Um, and I'd never had poutine. So they, they hunted down like, you know, genuine Canadian poutine in New York. And all three of them were just like, do you like it? Do you like it? Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> It has, it has to be the unofficial national dish of my country is literally three things just yes. chucked into a bowl. What, so how do you make it? Uh, you heat up some gravy. Okay. All right. And then you pour it. Okay. And that's it. People are so confused by it. I'm just like, instead of ketchup, just pour gravy and chuck some cheese curds. That's the whole thing. They're like, but what's the secret? There's none. It is literally... <laughs> The only secret is getting actual cheese curds and gravy and then French fries. Some people call them chips, depending on where you are. Like it's not like some mythical passed down from Canadians upon old, down through generations, guarded by our moose with beaver guards outside of the moose wondering, we're not getting the recipe. They're not having it, right? You know what? You want to have authentic poutine? You go to Montreal and you find a place that's the most rundown place you can possibly find. And just serves it in an aluminum tin, and it's just and just eat it. The best poutine I had in my life was 3 a.m. somewhere. I don't remember. Maybe maybe because it was 3 a.m. and I 
Is it not served on a hockey stick? Is it not? See, now, but see, now then you went with the hockey stick shot. And then I'm going to say, well, I don't know. Did you have your didgeridoo? And, you know, it's just we're going to go down that route. You know what I mean? So it's, it's that's the thing. And, and, and oh, yes, you do. You're on a hockey stick. All right, Scott, um, we do probably eventually need to wrap up this episode. But can you tell us, is there a book or a resource or anything that has influenced the way that you speak? Ooh, yeah, yeah, we can go for another hour about this. Um, when it comes to presenting, uh, one of my favorite books is um, uh, Confessions of a Public Speaker. It's by uh, Scott, uh, Scott Birkin phenomenal book um it still holds true to, it was written i think he wrote it 10 years ago 15 years ago still holds he's had new editions great guy great book um and that is such a wonderful uh not not and it's it, one of the things about speaking is a lot of the times the the speaking books get a lot into the speaking business and not about presenting necessarily and scott's book plays a great kind of tightrope in that world where it's relevant to people who don't want to do this as a job um, but also relevant people who want to do more speaking kind of in the world. And I would, I would recommend him, his book every day and twice on Sunday. And lastly, Scott, where can people find you if they've loved what they've heard today? Uh, we have, uh, it's called the Unnewsletter. Just go to unnewsletter.com. And uh, if you want to sign up for it, the, our world's unmarketing. Um, but the easiest way is the newsletter. We're on all social and we're unmarketing. But if you want the goods and the tips and the videos and everything else, that newsletter, it's free. And we just go by authenticity, integrity, and community. Awesome. awesome. Well, we've been recording for a little bit longer than we even anticipated because this is just <laughs> we thought it might be an easy conversation. It's been great. And I think we could delve deep on basically anything we've touched on already. So thank you so, so much, Scott, for being on the show. Of course. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes, and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. And scene. I heard Elliot. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I almost called it out. I got, I got so excited. And then I, I didn't because I wanted to keep it easy for you guys. But I was very excited <laughs> when I can hear him. Oh, God. Go back to sleep, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>